Hi, everyone. Um, I don't have a, I'm going to leave this here for now, but at some point I'm going to pick it up and look at it. Um, so uh, a lot of you know me, but not all of them. As she said, um, I am work at BuzzFeed. I'm an uh, investigative reporter there. Um, I'm a Seattle native, uh, grew up in Seattle, um, went to high school in Seattle. Um, some of my high school class, classmates are here, which is really great. Um, uh, now I live in Los Angeles, and one of my old editors from Los Angeles is here, who now lives in Bellingham, and I'm extremely, extremely tickled he's here, so that's really nice. Um, and uh, this book is called Red Card, and it really is, um, as you can tell from the cover, about, it's, it looks like it's a soccer book, and in many ways it is, but it also is sort of about much more than that. It's a book about corruption in the sport, and in, in a larger way, a look at corruption writ large, um, as a sort of modern international phenomenon, the way that um, large institutions, large international institutions that are intermixed with um, corporate interests and intermixed with um, political uh, activities end up um, becoming compromised and often very much corrupted. If you think about that, that's something we are kind of all thinking about a lot these days. This is something that, that is, has become part of the conversation, um, the, the, the idea that Corruption is pervasive, and as the prosecutors in the case that I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, called it endemic, something that you can find um, sort of at every level um, of, of an institution or organization. And in many ways, um, the soccer institution around the world, which is run by a group called FIFA, probably a lot of you heard of that, but maybe not everyone. FIFA is this organization based in Switzerland that sits atop the pyramid of world soccer. And... Um, uh, FIFA and the FIFA case kind of represents a model of what international co uh, um, corruption kind of looks like um, and how it operates. And this case um, has relevance for that on that level. It also has relevance. So if you're a, if you're interested in that kind of thing, you're you're interested in in corruption. If you're a legal scholar, that kind of thing, it has relevance. It also has relevance um, if you're in the political realm because this case. Um, in ways that no one who were involved in it could understand at the time, ended up having um, an incredibly huge impact in all kinds of other things. Um, chiefly, um, the current investigation of the president um, by Robert Mueller. Um, this case has a kind of surprising amount of connective tissue to what's happening in Washington right now. Um, and I, I'm going to get into that a little bit as well, um, in a way that is kind of, it's really eye-popping, at least to a lot of people, when you hear about that. Um, and then finally, of course, if you're a soccer fan, um, it's, it's important because what happened in this investigation um, was kind of a watermark uh, a moment in the history of the sport. And I think anyone who follows the sport and cares about it in 50, 50 or 100 years will be talking about this case as, as, a, as really an, an incredible milestone and a, and a force for major change in the sport over the, the long term. Um, sort of on a par, some might argue, with the... Um, founding of FIFA in 1904. So um, I, I think it's, there's a lot of interest groups that could find this interesting. Um, so what I'm going to do is just lay out uh, sort of in, in, in a broad scope what FIFA is, what the corruption was all about, um, what this case was, how this case began, what this case was about, um, and, and then sort of um, looking forward what, what could happen. Um, so to begin with, uh, FIFA, as I said a minute ago, was founded in 1904. It was, this, it was this organization founded to try to unify soccer around the world. Soccer was relatively new. It was only about 50 years old at the time. Um, and 
the rules hadn't really been codified from country to country. And so um, when they started around the turn of the century thinking about playing games across borders, right, that France could play Belgium or, um, uh, or Uruguay could play Argentina, they didn't really have standard rules. The pitch, the, the soccer field could be a different size in the different countries. The goal could be a different size. The rule about um, how many substitutions are allowed, all these things that, that are standardized weren't at the time. And so they needed an organization that could unify all the rules. That was the basic thinking behind it. I think there were seven or eight countries that started at first. England was not one of them. England was the original soccer association. They call it the FA, the Football Association. And they didn't believe they needed to mess around with those Europeans. And they thought they were apart from it. But they ultimately joined. And, and then they left. And then they came back. And they left again. And they came back. Um, and, um, and that's what the organization did for many years, until, uh, until 1930, when the first World Cup was held. And the World Cup was held um, actually as a response to the Olympics, because the Olympics in, um, uh, in the 20s started having a soccer tournament. It was enormously successful, and the people in FIFA got really jealous of the Olympic success with soccer and decided to organize a tournament. And the first tournament was in Uruguay. And the reason it was in Uruguay is because Uruguay said, well, we'll foot the whole bill, right? So that, that sounded like a good idea to FIFA, and they picked Uruguay. And only 13 countries went to that first tournament in Uruguay. And a little, little trivia fact, um, that is the tournament um, that had the best performance by the U.S. national team of any World Cup. Um, the U.S. came in third place in the uh, 1930 World Cup. Um, there was only 13 teams again, but still um, something to brag about. Um, and you know the other great U.S. achievement was in 1950, the uh, World Cup in Brazil, when the U.S. beat England one to zero, and the goal scorer for the U.S. was a guy born in Haiti who didn't have U.S. citizenship. So it's a looser, a looser time. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, that's kind of how FIFA continued. It got the World Cup. That was the thing that people really appreciated. Very quickly became popular. There was a break with the World, Second World War where there was no um, World Cup played, and after that it just grew and grew became more popular, but it was kind of a quiet thing. It wasn't the money that came from soccer was coming from tickets sold at the events, and that was it. Most of FIFA's revenue came from, from, the, from the door, from tickets, and from sales of, of merchandise at the stadium, and that was about it. 1974, there's an interesting event, which is that the first non-European is elected president of FIFA. And he says, well, you know, I want this to be the world sport. He runs in a campaign. He's a Brazilian named Joao Havelange. He says, I want to make this the world sport. I want everyone to be able to play soccer, including you know, impoverished children in the third world, in the developing world. I want people in countries that don't even know what that is to have an exposure to it. Everyone thinks this is a great idea, and he wins. And then he goes to his sort of accounting department, which was like one guy, this is true, who had like a dog that slept under his desk and had kind of lived in the office. It was unclear where he belonged. And he said to him, so you know, what's this going to cost to, to, to give soccer to the whole world and he said, well, we have $66 in the bank right now, so it's, we, don't, we can't do that. And, um, and so he's in a panic, he doesn't know what to do, and along comes this German guy, and this German guy is the son of the founder of Adidas, right? And his name is Horst Dassler, and he's one of the great geniuses of marketing, modern sports marketing, maybe the creator of modern sports marketing. And he says, I, I, I got this, I can get you all the money you want. And Avalon says, well, how do you do that? And he says, you just don't worry. And he goes away and he comes back with a contract from Coca-Cola. And, and it's a huge contract. And the contract is to sponsor the World Cup and to be the main beverage sponsor 
for FIFA for the World Cup. Well, until that time in the mid-1970s, the idea of being the exclusive worldwide sponsor in a category was, didn't exist, right? It wasn't a thing. This was this brilliant innovation. And once Coca-Cola did it, then you had film, you know, uh, Fujifilm, I think, or maybe it was Konica or something, and then you had um, KLM Airways. You had all these different brands coming in, and money starts gushing in. Um, and then suddenly FIFA's revenue is expanding greatly and the sport's growing greatly. And um, after the World Cup, they're planning the next World Cup. And this German and an Englishman he worked with are meeting um, in Madrid because the next World Cup is going to be in Madrid. And this is, an, it seems kind of small detail, but it's important because they, they're meeting in Madrid and these two men go to the bathroom and they're standing at uh, adjoining urinals in the bathroom in Madrid at this, um, at this convention center. And they're talking about uh, planning for the next World Cup and the different broad, uh, excuse me, sponsorship revenue coming in. And they say, well, you know, Avalanche isn't taking a salary. He's working for free. Maybe we should, we should tell FIFA to give him a salary. That's what the Brit, the Brit says. And, uh, and the German, Dasser, says, well, are you crazy? We don't want to pay him a salary. He won't be answerable to us if we pay him a salary. He says, well, what do we do to keep him in check, he says, what we do is we pay him a bribe. We pay him $500,000. And that way he belongs to us. And that's what he did. That German guy and that Englishman paid him an under-the-table bribe, $500,000. And in that moment, they set the model for how it was going to work from there on out. And all the bribes and all the corruption that, that happened in soccer was sort of born in that moment. That was the original sin. That was the moment that, he, that you know, they took the apple from the Garden of Eden, so to speak. Well, a couple years later, something else really important happened, which is that technology improved and television that would allow simulcast color TV broadcast of sporting events around the world developed around 1980. And by the mid-1980s, the television revenue had beat the sponsorship revenue for the World Cup. And pretty soon FIFA was absolutely rolling in money. And one of the other things that was happening was every single time they renewed one of these sponsorship or television deals for the World Cup, there was bribes being paid to the top FIFA officials and to other influential people. And that model begins, begins picked up at the regional level because FIFA is organized like a pyramid. And at the top of it is FIFA. Below it are six regional confederations which control the diff six different regions of the world. There's Europe, there's South America, there's North Central America and the Caribbean. There's Asia, um, which is vast, goes from the Middle East all the way to Japan. Um, there's um, Africa. And then there's uh, Oceania, which is like New Zealand and the Pacific Islands. Bali probably is in Oceania. Um, and um, each of those has their own tournaments with their own sponsorship deals and with their own television deals. And each one of those deals, in many cases, was also underpinned with a bribe. Well, why, do they, why do they pay these bribes? One of them, as I said, was to control right, the, the person who... who is in the office, but the other is to make sure when you control that person, he doesn't let anyone else in on the deal, right? If you have a, if you have a company, you don't have to bid against other com companies for the right, right? That just makes it you know, less of a good deal for you. You're going to have to pay more money. So if you can do everything without competition, you're going to get a better deal. Your margins are going to increase, and you're going to make a lot more money. And that's what happened. Those middlemen got incredibly wealthy, made huge amounts of money, and, and all this sort of theoretical money that could have come into the sport never happens because there's never another bid for any of those things. There's never a second outside bid for any of the rights for the sponsorship, for the television, for the licensing, for anything. It all comes into one bidder over and over again. They sign these incredibly long contracts, 10-year long contracts, 
etc. So that's how soccer goes along for years, because the other thing that happens is the popularity of this tournament is giant, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and the World Cup um, becomes the most popular sporting event in the world. Avalanche's dream of bringing it to the world kind of succeeds. There's now 211 members of FIFA. Um, to give you a comparison point, uh, the United Nations has like 192 or 193 countries in it. So there are more soccer voting countries than there are actual countries, according to the United Nations. <laughs> Um, because FIFA is very generous with what it calls a country, right? So Puerto Rico, which is a U.S. Uh, protectorate, is considered its own country under FIFA rules, right? And Guam as well. Um, and if we have time, we'll find some fun things out about Guam later on. Um, and they all come and they vote in things. And the other thing, they vote. one of the most important things they vote on is where the World Cup is held, right? The World Cup just ended a few weeks ago. Hopefully some of you got to watch some of it. Um, well, um, those decisions where to hold it are hosted, are made by FIFA, and um, they bring in excuse me they bring in the different countries to to make their pitches and they vote and um, it turns out and this might not surprise you but that process is extremely fraught. There's huge financial interests in where the World Cup will be held, and um, it turns out that often people are willing to pay money under the table to make sure that their country gets the World Cup. I know that's shocking, but that's the case. Well. I want to talk to you after I refresh myself um, a little bit about um, the 2018 World Cup, which we just saw. It's a critical moment. It leads to everything that happened thereafter. In 2010, FIFA um, is going to have a vote to determine where the 2018 World Cup is held and also the 2022 World Cup. We're going to have two votes in the same day. And the countries that are bidding for 2018 are England, Spain and Portugal together, Belgium and, and uh, Holland together, and Russia. England is clearly the best candidate. They have the, the best facilities, they have the best um, hotels, the best stadiums, the best infrastructure. They have this incredible tradition. They invented the sport. They had the first FA. FA is soccer talk for football association. Um, and uh, they also won the World Cup in 66, and it just seems like the, the place to hold it. They have the best professional league in the world as well. Russia, on the other hand, um, doesn't have really any of that stuff. They have bad infrastructure, bad uh, transport, bad stadiums. Um, the only real rich soccer in the history they have is when it was the USSR, and all the, good, all the good teams were sort of not the Russian part of the USSR. All the good players were coming from Ukraine and, um, and, and Poland and other parts that participated. I'm not sure about Poland, but the, the parts of the USSR that were in the West. So Russia doesn't really have a great history, um, and what they have on their side is one thing. They have Vladimir Putin on their side. Vladimir Putin wants really badly to have the World Cup. He doesn't like soccer. He's a hockey guy. If you go on the internet, you'll see all kinds of videos of him um, suiting up and playing hockey, and he scores. It's, you know, he'll score 10 goals in one game, right? It's, it's kind of comical. It reminds me a little bit of like um, the, in North Korea where, where Kim will like do a hole in one every time he plays golf. So Putin will, will routinely score 10 goals a game when he plays hockey. He doesn't care about soccer. He's not interested, but he recognizes the value of this incredibly popular event. Um, England, at first, is completely clueless to this, right? But they, to, to sort of ensure what they consider to be a cakewalk, what they're sure they're going to walk away with, they hire some experts, some sort of um, people who are expert in, in um, corporate intelligence, I think is what they call it. And one of these guys... Um, is, is sort of an unknown Russia expert 
who's just left England's spy service, the MI6. And they hire him so he can focus on the Russia piece of the bid. Um, he had just left MI6 in, in, in 2009, and when he started, he started a little business um, in central London, and one of his first clients was the English bid. This guy's name you've probably heard of. It's Christopher Steele. Um, Christopher Steele um, does some work for them. He starts to find some very troubling things about what Russia is up to. But before he, he gets to that point, he had been started to meet with the FBI. He'd been meeting with the FBI because um, of another, another thing going on, which is that the FBI under Robert Mueller, who was the director at the time, had put a new emphasis on what he called transnational crime, transnational financial, transnational organized crime. And an FBI squad in New York run by a guy who was a um, specialist in the uh, Genovese crime family in Brooklyn who got switched over to this squad, and this squad is specialized in Russian organized crime. He's doing, he's running a case, and that case involves um, an illegal uh, poker match and an illegal um, gambling ring, an off, um, online sports betting ring that's being run out of the, the Trump Tower. Um, and there's wiretaps from the FBI on this ring. Um, if any of you caught it, there was a movie recently called Molly's Game. Um, that movie is based um, on that, that case. That, that Molly uh, Bloom played a small part in what was a much bigger a criminal um, conspiracy. So um, this FBI agent is, is working in this case and at the top of this whole thing is a Russian financing the whole gambling enterprise. And he's in Russia and he had previously been um, under evaluation, shall we say, by the DOJ because he had been uh, accused of bribing judges in figure skating at the 2002 World Cup. He, was bribing, uh, he bribed a French judge to vote for the Russians to win um, this pair's figure skating gold, which they did. So he's in Russia. This FBI agent had gone to London and through connections had met Christopher Steele in the early parts of 2010 to talk about this Russian crime lord. And when he left, he said, listen, if you know any other transnational crime cases involving Russia, give me a call. So a few months later, when Christopher Steele determines that, yep, Russia's up to no good with this World Cup bid and they're bribing people and they're doing all kinds of untoward things, he calls the FBI up again. And he delivers what we can think of now as the FIFA dossier, right? We think about the Trump dossier. Well, what he originally created was the FIFA dossier. He gets the FBI back there, tells them about this. The FBI agent has never even heard of FIFA, right? He calls it FIFA. He doesn't know what it is. He likes the, he likes the Yankees and he likes the New York Giants, and that's as far as his sporting interest goes. But he goes back to New York because he does know a good case when he sees one, and he goes and meets, he goes and talks to his prosecutor in Brooklyn. And um, for those of you who don't know, the way these cases work is the FBI can investigate all at once, but until they get a prosecutor who wants to, to play nice with them, there's no case, right? It's the prosecutor who runs the case. They're the ones who make it go along. It's a little bit like, um, like one of those Dick Wolf type TV shows. You need the prosecutor to make it happen. And um, this prosecutor is a very smart uh, guy, Harvard grad, out of, uh, who'd been busting organized crime in Brooklyn, likes the smell of this and opens the case. And that's how, that's how the case began, but they ran it in total complete secrecy for five years. And they ran it in complete secrecy because they were terrified that soccer, which was so important all over the world, so such a subject of incredible scrutiny um, from press and other countries, they were terrified that if any, any word of this leaked out, then all these people they're targeting and doing research on 
would go to ground, right? They would disappear and they could never get them and they would run to countries where you wouldn't be able to extradite them or even get any financial information about them. So the case was run in complete secrecy, um, uh, but also proves to be really difficult because the Russians are pretty hard to pin down on stuff. So after a year, um, a really important sort of landmark thing happens in the case, um, which is uh, a guy in Orange County, California, um, uh, who's an IRS agent, um, gets a Google alert one day, and this is the opening um, pages of my book. This IRS agent is named Steve Berryman. And he was a place kicker in college, but he grew up a big part of his youth in England and uh, is a huge soccer fan and had never done anything at all as a professional IRS agent involved in soccer. But this is what happened. Shortly after 10 on the morning of August 16, 2011, Steve Berryman, a 47-year-old special agent for the Invest Internal Revenue Service, was in his cubicle on the third floor of a huge federal office building known as the Ziggurat in Laguna Niguel, California. His mobile phone vibrated. There was a new Google Alert email in his inbox. Berryman, six foot tall and slender with brown eyes so dark they looked almost black, thick eyebrows, pale skin, and a neatly trimmed white mustache that matched his slick back hair had set up a number of such alerts. His choice of keywords betrayed his sensibility that after 25 years at the IRS had become highly refined when it came to financial crimes. Berryman had alerts for money laundering, corruption, Bank Secrecy Act, and Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, among many others. The messages arrived in batches throughout the day, delivering dozens of news articles from around the world about various cases of financial misbehavior that Berryman would quickly scan before returning to whatever case he happened to be working. This particular notification stopped him in his tracks. The alert was under the search term bribery and contained a link to an article by the Reuters News Service. The headline was FBI Examines U.S. Soccer Bosses' Financial Records. The stories described a set of documents allegedly being scrutinized by the FBI that outlined more than $500,000 in suspicious payments received over a 15-year uh, period by an American soccer official named Chuck Blazer. Blazer was a high-ranking official of FIFA, the governing body of world soccer. Berryman thought he, must, he might have heard his name somewhere, but he didn't recognize the photo of a scowling, tousle-haired man with bushy eyebrows and an unruly gray beard. An intoxicating surge of excitement swept over him as he reread the article several times, taking special note of the fact that Blazer had several offshore banking accounts, including one in the Cayman Islands. He forwarded the article to his supervisor, Amy Scabillion, then dashed into her office to make sure she'd read it. This, he said, could be huge. It was huge. Within a couple of months, he had inserted himself into the case. He'd gone to New York and convinced the prosecutors that they needed him. And what he brought to the case was the ability to follow money all over the world. What IRS agents are trained to do is something that the FBI wasn't able to do, which was to, was to track money from place to place, to trace the money in the complicated way that money launderers move money from, from um, country to country, bank to bank, changing the names of who receives it, doing incredibly complicated things to hide the origin of the destination of the money. Steve Berryman had an incredible knack for, for doing that kind of work. And in the end, when this case finally went to trial, he spent three and a half days on the stand. Um, and it was, for someone like me who had spent so long 
following this, it was kind of incredible to watch him because what you saw in the audience in the, in the jury was a, a projection of dozens and dozens of Excel spreadsheets. And you could tell he had sort of had them all memorized, right? The prosecutor would say, where was that? And he'd say, oh, it's, you know, it's line JJ. You know, it's like line JJ column XXB or something. He, like, it was like that. And this is, you could tell this is a guy who had lived with these numbers, lived with these bank statements and all that. And what he and the others succeeded in doing was um, showing definitively how um, more than almost four dozen people um, but they indicted in the, in the case had been um, taking bribes, giving bribes, and laundering, um, laundering all of these proceeds for their own personal benefit and taking money from the sport. So how does this come public? Well, it comes public in a really uh, wild news story um, on May 27, uh, 2015. In today's news climate, where there's sort of three cataclysmic new pieces of information happening every day, um, it's hard to remember what, what yesterday's news was, right? We've all had that experience. What did Cohen do today? You know, what, what did Giuliani say? Well, back then, it wasn't quite like that. And so this story um, actually occupied the, the headlines for two weeks about... Um, this was a story that at um, 6 in the morning, Zurich time, um, a bunch of Swiss plainclothes police officers went into uh, Zurich's most luxurious hotel, the Boralak, and went to the rooms of, set, of multiple different FIFA officials, dragged them out of bed, told them they're under arrest, and put them under custody. And it was all done at the behest of the Department of Justice, and this was this watershed moment. Um, the press conference that was held in Brooklyn a few hours later was, um, was run by Jim Comey and by Loretta Lynch, both of whom had flown up from Washington to run the press conference. Um, and it was as if a bomb were dropped in soccer. Um, that initial indictment, which came out that day, led to another indictment, um, and there have been multiple other people and, and institutions that have, have been brought down in this case. Um, to date, uh, I think 25 people have pled guilty in the case, um, and there's another um, uh, 10 or so that are fighting extradition um, or in countries that don't extradite. Uh, a number of them are in Brazil, for example, which doesn't extradite its citizens. Um, in a couple of weeks, I'll be going to Brooklyn um, to watch the sentencing of uh, one of the people who was convicted at trial um, late last year. Um, this is a Brazilian named Jose Maria Marin. Marin um, ran Brazil Soccer Federation for not very long, but long enough to take a couple million dollars in bribes. Um, he was arrested on that first day. And a fun anecdote to, to tell you about what those people are like, um, he had just ceased being the president of that federation right before the time they went to Zurich. And the new president, a guy named Marco Polo del Nero, was a couple rooms away. For whatever reason, the DOJ didn't indict Marco Polo del Nero that day. They indicted him six months later. So he wasn't indicted. And when the police came and dragged him away, Marin's wife called up Marco Polo. And she said, Marco Polo, Marco Polo, it's terrible. They have my husband. I don't know what to do. Her husband and she, they were both in their late 70s. He said, don't worry, I'm coming. I'm going to come over there. We'll sort it all out. I'll sort, I'll, I'll sort out your problems and everything will be fine. She said, thank you, thank you. And then he hung up the phone and he packed up his suitcase and he went to the lobby of the hotel and he took a limousine to the airport and flew back to Brazil and has not come. He's never left Brazil since then. Um, he missed the vote and they had to emergency fly someone from Brazil to Zurich because the next day, or two days later, they were voting for the president of FIFA. And the president of FIFA at the time was a guy named Sepp Blatter. Some of you may have heard of him. Um, 
despite the incredible corruption that had just been exposed, despite the huge scandal going on, he was resoundingly reelected two days after the arrests. Three days after that, he resigned. Um, a couple months after that, he was put under criminal investigation in Switzerland. Um, then he was banned from the sport for, uh, for eight years. That was reduced to six years. Um, so he is banned from the sport. It's also, um, despite his um, rather nefarious reputation, a rather gracious host and kind of hilarious if you ever, if you ever talk to him. Um, this case um, ended up being the most ambitious uh, money laundering case, international money laundering case ever undertaken by the DOJ in terms of its scope and the number of um, prosecutors involved um, and by uh, the, just the sheer workload involved. Um, prosecutors who were involved in the trial were, um, were almost collapsing from exhaustion when the time was over. Talked about how they had never worked a case that was that difficult um, to put together to bring to trial. Um, the trial was really like out of the movies. Um, there was one defendant who kept making um, these gestures during the trial. He, used to, he twice was caught moving his hand across his neck um, at one of the defendants. Um, that same defendant um, who burst into tears the second time it happened, that same defendant um, was asked by a prosecutor who's an, this is an Argentine, excuse me, not defendant, uh, witness. That witness um, was asked by prosecutors if he'd ever bribed a public official in his native Argentina, and he said yes. And the prosecutor said, well, can you name uh, this person or people? And he named two people, and, he, and the prosecutor said, well, how much money did you bribe them? And he said $2 million apiece. Three hours later, after that news broke in Argentina, one of those two men jumped in front of a train and died. Um, uh, it was a really stark reminder of how sort of serious and what a big deal um, this was in those kind of places. Um, that's a country, Argentina, where the president of the country um, got his start as a politician as the president of Boca Juniors, which is the most popular club in Argentina. It sort of be it would be the equivalent of, you know, um, the the uh, the head of the head of the New York Yankees or something becoming president of the United States. Which now that I think about it, a few years ago would have seemed crazy. Maybe not so much anymore. And that brings us back to, to what I talked about a little bit earlier about the, um, about the connections to things we're thinking about now. Right? So we know that Christopher Steele was involved in this case and made it start. That becomes really important in what we think about now, um, uh, the famous Trump dossier and what's happening with the Mueller investigation. Um, it's very clear that the relationship that Christopher Steele built, built with the FBI and with this agent in particular um, became really important when six years later he put together what we think of now as the Trump dossier. Um, the FBI gets and other law enforcement get um, a crazy number of tips all the time from people about crimes, some of them really wild, and most of them are thrown right into the circular file. And the reason is because you don't know where they, if maybe not the circular file, some file no one really looks at. It being the government, they probably keep a record somewhere. Um, uh, go ahead and FOIA it. Anyway, um, uh, they, won't, they don't usually take those things too seriously, right? It's, it's, there's just too much of them coming in. You have to consider the source. Well, here we have a guy who had a relationship. They did take him seriously. He had brought them one of the biggest cases in their history. They took it very seriously when he came to them and said, I have this important document. That document, as we now know, is, is close to the center of the Mueller investigation, and um, uh, I have um, some skin in the game in this, um, but... Uh, 
Uh, I have yet to see anything in that dossier that has been definitively disproven. It's true that much of it has not been proven out, but um, nothing to this date has been definitively disproven. None of it would have ever been taken seriously um, if not for the case that's talked about in, in this book. It never would have happened. Um, similarly, multiple people on Mueller's staff um, have some kind of connective tissue to this case. Um, the lead prosecutor in this case is not on Mueller's team, but his immediate supervisor uh, during most of this case is on the team. And also um, a woman that he was in charge of, he was also, he was a supervisor as well as a prosecutor. One of the women he prosecuted is on the team and several others. And in fact, the way that this case was organized and run in, is, is very similar in a lot of ways to the Mueller investigation. This week, Paul Manafort's going to trial. If you look at that trial um, or that case, it's a money laundering case. A lot of the similar things that Steve Berryman and other uh, IRS agents know how to do are going to be put um, to the jury in that case. Um, understanding how a case like this works is incredibly informative about how uh, the prosecution of Manafort and potentially other people um, close to the president might might happen. Um, so, so for me, certainly, it's been really it's really been eye opening to see how those those things all connect. Um, maybe. It's possible it's because, as some people who love soccer believe, soccer has its tentacles in everything, and some under every dirty rock in the world is FIFA at some level. And maybe that's true. FIFA is deeply corrupt. Um, spinning it forward, one has to ask what will happen, what will be the outcome of this investigation, and of course, what will be the outcome of what Robert Mueller is doing. Um, a little harder to predict. The mother thing, I th I'd like to think that the FIFA case has a positive outcome for the sport. Um, people will ask, well, what's the, you know, what's the negative impact of some, some soccer corruption? You know, what does it matter if some middleman in a Brazilian company gets a little bit richer, you know, so that some other company doesn't get a chance to be a little bit rich? Well, the, you, you think about the impact of it, and I think it's measured in the way that the sport doesn't trickle down um, uh, or excuse me, the support in the support in the sport doesn't trickle down the way it should. Think back to what this guy Avalanche said back in the 70s. What he talked about is bringing the sport to the world. I don't think he meant um, developing a Messi, you know, or a Neymar in every country. I think what he meant was making sure that children who want to play a sport, uh, the world's most popular sport, can that they have the facilities available, um, or equally important that women get a fair chance to play the same as men. I think is outrageous that there's over 200 uh, men's national teams that can compete for a chance in the World Cup in the whole planet, but there's only about three or four dozen women's national teams around the country. And a lot of that comes from the fact that the soccer associations in those countries provide no money and no infrastructure for women to play the game. It's and one of the reasons is because many of those soccer associations have no money. Where the money go? Well, into the pockets of the corrupt officials and went in the pockets of the middlemen, because it's not just the bribes that get stolen from the sport. It's also the sort of imaginary money, the opportunity cost, that disappears because they signed a contract that was for way too, you know, too little money for the rights to whatever they do. So there is a real impact, and it isn't just for the millionaires who run around in the pitch. There's an impact for all the people who get deprived, uh, sort of the nice things about sport. And when we think about sport, I think it's sometimes important to separate the glitz and the glamour of the World Cup, which we just saw, um, from the sort of everyday uh, beauty of sport, which can be a thing that is good for people just to play, to, to recreatively play, for children to play and enjoy and feel better about themselves, not because they want to necessarily become a superstar, but because they like to play. And a lot of that's taken away from them by this, by the gross commercialization of the sport and, and the, um, 
and the corruption of the sport. And I think that applies to a lot of other things as well. We've seen in recent years some massive, massive corruption cases that have nothing to do with sports, right? We've seen um, uh, there's a massive case involving a firm called Odebrecht, which um, is, a, is a Brazilian construction firm that signed, a, I think, a $2 billion settlement with the DOJ and is under investigation in multiple other countries. Some of you might have heard that um, Lula, the former president of Brazil, is in jail now and um, his successor is under indictment and multiple other people. Well, that's all because of the bribe paying from this company, which is remarkably similar to the way that the bribes were being paid in the world of soccer. Um, uh, it's very persistent and it's, it's, um, it's troubling. So what happens out of this case? In this case, we arrested or the US arrested or got arrested a lot of people, brought them to trial and brought them to justice, but no one really pretends that the world of soccer is totally clean and can, to spin it forward, can there be improvements for the sport. Is it clean now? Is the World Cup we just saw in Russia, which we can, we now believe was won um, in an illegitimate fashion, um, can we believe that because that was a great tournament, there were a lot of fun to watch, some incredible games, does that mean the sport is cleaned up? And I think, unfortunately, the answer is no, but I do think that there is a lot of, um, there's been a lot of positive forward uh, um, improvements for the sport. The way the World Cup is selected has changed. The composition of FIFA's um, top executive council now has changed. There's, a, there's um, two or three women on it for the first time ever. There's a uh, woman secretary general of FIFA for the first time ever. And the voting is now much more democratized so that every member of FIFA gets to vote. Um, doesn't mean it's cleaned up. I don't think so. But, I, you know, we see that the World Cup is now coming to the U.S. in 2026. I believe that if they had chosen the other bid, which was Morocco, it would have been a sign that really nothing has changed. Um, instead, it's coming here. Um, the reason it's coming here is because um, the United bid held up um, some, you know, PowerPoint slides that said they were going to make $15 billion in profit. Um, so it's an organization that's still kind of motivated by money, but hopefully if the money ends up in the right place, it might get down to those kids and, and to the women's game and all kinds of other important places that need it. Um, as for the case itself, it's still ongoing. And I mentioned earlier Guam. Um, a really important thing to watch for those of you who want to follow this, um, in uh, May of last year, um, a guy named Richard Lai from Guam appeared in federal court in Brooklyn. No one had ever heard of him. Um, and he, pre he pled guilty to wire fraud and money laundering. Well, who is Richard Lai? He was the president of Guam's soccer association. Guam, um, even though it's a U.S. protectorate, is part of the Asian Football Confederation, which is the one that, as I mentioned earlier, covers everything from Saudi Arabia all the way to Japan and Korea. And um, Richard Lai, even though he's from country Guam, which has a, really no soccer, um, you know, great success to speak of, um, he was a very high up important person in that confederation, and he was admitting to taking massive amounts of bribes over a long period of time. Why is that important? Well, one of the countries also involved in the Asian Football Confederation is Qatar. Um, if you remember early in this thing, I talked about there being two votes um, on that day in December 2010 where Russia was selected. Well, the other vote was um, between a number of countries, but particularly the United States of America and Qatar. And to the shock of everyone in the world, Qatar won the rights to host the 2022 World Cup. Crazy decision because Qatar in June and July, where the World Cup is usually held, has an average daytime temperature of about 114 degrees. Um, for those of you who played any kind of sports ever, imagine playing the absolute peak level in 114 degree heat. Um, wasn't tenable, it was impossible. It's a tiny country, 
um, in terms of land mass with a lot of money. Um, there's really, they, they, it's so small, there's no need um, for stadiums that big. I think the third largest city um, in Qatar, its population would more than double um, of the entire of the town when, whenever a match was played in the stadiums. And so, so impractical, but they talked about building um, uh, modular stadiums that they could take down and put on trucks and boats and ship to another country after the World Cup was over. Um, and try and, and just all kinds of bizarre stuff like that. So they're ultimately now going to move the World Cup to the winter to avoid the weather problem. But the point here is that there's strong evidence to suggest that the government might be looking really hard at that Qatar bid. And, and the point being that there's still unfinished work to be done. So um, I will you know, be continuing to follow this. I, I think it, for me, certainly it's very instructive um, about what else is happening in the world. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to me ramble on about it. So um, I think the best thing to do now might be to open it up to questions for, from anyone who has them. So the question was um, whether there's a doping problem in soccer and specifically whether Russia um, is involved in doping um, and whether that might have affected the um, surprisingly strong run of Russia at this most recent World Cup. Um, so the, the easy answer to that is yes, Russia has a doping problem. Um, we've seen it. Uh, Richard McLaren, who is a, a Canadian who was hired to look into um, all the, the 2014 Winter Olympic doping allegations about Russia. As part of that investigation, um, uncovered that specific Russian soccer players were in, indeed um, among those who received um, performance-enhancing drugs. Um, the direct connective tissue to the national team that played in this last World Cup has never exactly been made, but it's very clear that over a dozen of Russia's best players, the ones who competed at the Olympic level, um, were doping, and there's every reason to suspect that the problem is much larger than that. So Russia has a problem. Whether other countries have a problem, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, we, it's, as far as I know, WADA, the world anti-doping um, regulator, doesn't have the same kind of influence over soccer as it does over athletics and the Olympics in general. Um, and we really haven't had the big doping scandal in soccer. We haven't had in other sports. But um, there was a lot of questioning at the, at the outset of the World Cup when Russia wins its group um, and then goes and, and beats Spain. People are wondering how it's possible for a team that was ranked, I think, um, the lowest of any team in the World Cup, or the second lowest of any team in the World Cup, I think it, its worldwide ranking was number 70 or something like that in the world, a team that by, by, except for the fact that it qualified automatically as host, by any reasonable measure, should have lost all three games and got home, was um, seriously contending to be a semifinalist, was kind of shocking. And I don't, you may have seen similar stuff. I saw these charts where people had measured sort of how fast players ran and for how long and they sort of, there was an implication that Russia was outperforming everyone athletically in the tournament. It's possible, I, I, I'm just beyond my depth and able to, to say that definitively, but it is clear that Russia has, has a problem with doping. And it's also a kind of problem that comes from the top down, right? Um, the, the man who came forward, the whistleblower who came forward about the doping problem in the Olympics, uh, a guy named Grigory Rechenkov, answered directly to a guy named um, Vlad, uh, um, um, Mutko. And Mukko was the head of Russia's soccer association and the, um, uh, deputy, the sports minister as well. And now he's the deputy prime minister. He's been a friend, a personal friend of Vladimir Putin since the early 1990s in St. Petersburg. Um, Mutko appears in my book in a really harrowing, 
I think, harrowing, I'm biased, but I think harrowing chapter um, in which Russia interfered with um, the case once it became public. Um, and um, I don't want to spoil it too much, but one of the men who was arrested that day in Zurich that I told you about um, managed to escape um, the Justice Department completely thanks to Russian intervention. Um, and there was a meeting between an American lawyer who was defending this guy and Mutko in Russia in um, the summer of 2015 where Mutko says, don't you worry, I've got this, it's going to be fine. And sure enough, a few, a few months later, that guy was extradited to Uruguay rather than the U.S. and they've never laid a finger on him. Um, so that's the guy who ran the soccer federation in Russia and who ran the doping program and is now the deputy prime minister of Russia. So the question was um, uh, whether this case would have happened without the U.S. intervention. Um, and now that it has happened, um, what kind of oversight is going to exist? Um, so the answer is uh, basically there hasn't, it's true, there hadn't really ever been any serious attempt to rein this in ever prior to the U.S. involvement. Um, uh, the Swiss had investigated um, that, if you recall, I mentioned a German guy, um, he made this company. The Swiss investigated that company once and basically let everyone walk without even a slap on the wrist. The Brits, um, the parliamentarians were constantly calling for criminal investigations and it never got opened, mostly because they were too scared of offending FIFA. Um, the Brazilians, um, likewise, their parliament was constantly calling for investigations and the prosecutors were always turning down the referrals. There just never had been a serious investigation until the U.S. got involved. One way to look at it is it's possible that because soccer has a smaller profile here, um, it gave the agents um, and the prosecutors the kind of the kind of cover they needed to do a case um, that would have been impossible in another country. Um, it's also true that the DOJ has somewhat of a philosophy on these kinds of international corruption cases that by acting first, they can uh, um, effectively sort of shame other other countries' law enforcements into action. And we see that with um, FCPA, foreign corruption uh, uh, type cases, where um, there's sort of a ripple effect. If there's one case brought by the US, there's multiple cases brought elsewhere. In the case of this, um, after the US opened its case or, or declared its case public, cases opened in Switzerland, France, Germany, Australia, um, Brazil, Spain, Multiple other countries opened their own cases. None of those cases existed prior to the U.S. investigation. In terms of regulation, one of the reasons that FIFA, uh, I think, was allowed to operate um, so corrupt for so long is because it's based in Switzerland. And I apologize if there's any Swiss in the room, but the Swiss um, seem very interested in letting nonprofits um, incorporate there and operate there and pay an extremely reduced rate of tax there and then not have to be regulated at all there. There's very little regulation, and what regulation there is is done behind closed door and no one hears about it. A nonprofit in the U.S. has to make public tax filings and it has to show its books to the world. In Switzerland, they don't have to do any of that. Um, and to this day, there is no regulatory authority that really is willing to do anything about an organization like FIFA. Turns out other sports organizations are also aware of this. So the International Olympic Committee is also in Switzerland. Um, the, um, the governing body of cycling is in Switzerland, also um, hockey, also archery, also athletics, also volleyball, also basketball. Pretty much every international sporting organization is based in Switzerland, and it's a good place to be if you don't want anyone looking at your dirty laundry. Effectively, the only way that they're being regulated now is through social pressure uh, from fans and from brands, and brands respond, sponsors respond to uh, the feelings of their consumers to some degree. Um, 
And the other is um, through these law firms that have now sort of occupied FIFA and the different confederations because the way you respond to a DOJ investigation is to hire a very expensive law firm who becomes a resident within the agency and is doing these huge internal investigations and helping them negotiate with the DOJ and having these constant conversations with the prosecutors about what they should and should not do um, and how they should handle public relations and how they should handle all kinds of decisions. So while those are ongoing, um, I wouldn't say it's fair to say that they're captive of the DOJ, but there's a very uh, symbiotic type relationship. Um, so I didn't talk about him in this talk. Um, uh, uh, one of the most corrupt, I'm sorry, the question was who are the um, guys who run US soccer and are they corrupt? Um, so the, one, the, the, one of the most corrupt figures in this whole case is an American. Um, he was the first cooperator, um, a guy named Chuck Blazer. Um, uh, those of you who haven't heard of him, he's really remarkable. He, he died about a year ago, but he was a guy from Queens who um, was a soccer dad in Westchester County, New York, and in the late 1970s when the sport was just starting to have its first boom in this country, he was an opportunist and he saw an opportunity to, to rise in the ranks. He became um, the most powerful American in the history of the sport, one of the 24 people on the executive committee of FIFA, um, incredibly uh, powerful in the organization. Um, there's photos of him hanging out with Vladimir Putin and other people like that, Nelson Mandela, this sort of thing. Um, and he uh, was enormously corrupt and was brought down um, uh, by the IRS agent who discovered he didn't pay taxes and hadn't filed a tax return in 17 years, um, which, uh, piece of advice, is not a good idea. Um, and um, uh, he lived in the Trump Tower. Um, and he had two apartments in the Trump Tower. There's a famous story about him, which I regret to report is untrue, that he had an apartment for his cats. Um, he had a second apartment that he used for visitors um, and guests, but he, since he didn't always have guests, that's where his cats hung out. I guess it's not totally untrue, but it's not fair to say he rent, it was rented just for the cats. Um, uh, he's famous. He was very, a very large man, about 450 pounds, and he would ride. He could hardly walk. He would ride around Central Park on a personal mobility sco scooter with a pigeon, excuse me, not a pigeon, a parrot, a parrot, on his shoulder, um, and he had a big bushy beard and this big uh, sort of nest of uh, salt and pepper hair. Really, a larger than life character. If you have a chance, I highly recommend you Google Chuck Blazer later and just look at the photos. He liked to wear funny costumes. Um, Anyway, he was, he was enormously corrupt um, in answer to that part of the question. Um, and many of the people that ran U.S. soccer for many years were sort of his protégés, right? So the most famous is a guy named Sunil Gulati. Sunil Gulati was the president of the U.S. Soccer Federation for about eight years, I believe. He just, no, more than that, from 20, 2007 or eight until just this past February he was the president. He um, claims to be clean clean as a whistle, um, but he spent an enormous amount of time with a lot of people who have fallen under, um, under the guillotine of U.S. justice. So many, many people question whether he's as clean as um, it would have, he would like you to believe. Um, a lot of other people who um, believe that U.S. soccer is problematic point to the commercial relationship that U.S. soccer has with professional soccer, the major, major league soccer, and how major league soccer's marketing arm owns the rights um, to U.S. soccer. All their commercial rights are controlled by Major League Soccer, and in a kind of astonishingly um, familiar relationship, they keep winning it over and over again, again, and no-bid contracts that no one else uh, gets to compete for. 
sounds familiar to me. So it's, it's not definitive that it is a corrupt organization, but a lot of people feel that it has the same um, um, perfume about it. Sure. Um, so the question was how, how, how I managed to write a book, essentially, and whether uh, journalism is alive or dead. Um, uh, this book, I'm, I'm an investigative reporter, as I said, beginning. At the beginning, I'm not specifically a sports reporter. I like sports, and every once in a while, I'll, um, I'll twist some editor's arm enough to let, let him, to give him, uh, the, or excuse me, so he will give me permission to do a sports report. Um, and uh, I never succeeded with Pat McMahon. He wasn't going to have it. But otherwise, um, I've managed to make a few editors let me do sports articles. I wrote a profile of this guy, Chuck Blazer, we men I mentioned a little minute ago, back in 2014 before the last World Cup. I thought he was an interesting character. I thought he was a larger-than-life character. I thought he was corrupt. I had no idea he was working for the FBI at the time and the IRS at the time. Um, but I just thought he was a fascinating character. I wrote the article, um, put it down, moved on to other topics, had nothing to do with sports. And then a year later, these arrests we talked about um, happened. And within a day or two, we learned that he was a cooperator, one of a couple critical cooperators. And suddenly, um, uh, it's that sort of adage, it's better, to be, um, it's better to be lucky than smart. I looked really smart, and I was just lucky. Um, I'd written a profile of a guy who seemed critical to the case. Um, and I got a great opportunity, which um, not enough writers get, which is the chance to write a book about something, and in my case, also to sell the movie rights to something, which I did all in a whirlwind couple weeks. Um, and then I had this serious problem, which is I have no idea how to write a book about FIFA, and I don't know anything about it. Um, and so um, then began an odyssey of just sort of giving, being given the, um, the luxury of diving into something as deeply as I could and reading as many books as I could and traveling. I went to, to Switzerland twice, London twice, um, other European countries multiple times, went to South America a couple times, went to Miami so many times. I got to tell you, Miami is, is, if you want to find corrupt soccer culture, it's like f five stars. Um, uh, and then New York a lot, of course, because that's where all the lawyers and all the prosecutors and stuff were. And so it really was one of these things of making the trips, getting that elite status on the airline to the extra leg room and flying around and... and um, and seeing as many as people as possible, many of whom wouldn't talk to me. So one of the experiences was um, having doors shut in my face constantly. When I went to Zurich the first time, it was for the election of um, the new president. The new president is Gianni Infantino. Um, and um, I was there to see if he would beat this guy from Bahrain. Um, and FIFA heard about my book, and they denied me a credential. Um, there was 900 reporters credentialed for this event. They were playing inside of a hockey arena that holds... 15, excuse me, not playing, they were voting inside of a hockey arena that holds 15,000 people, um, but they couldn't find room for me. Um, and so I sat out there and it was raining, it was like a 34 degrees out, it was miserable, and I, was, and I thought, well, this is impossible. This book is impossible. I cannot do this book. All these British soccer journalists were laughing at me and saying it's impossible. And that happened. I had uh, um, lunch with these British uh, documentarians who said that they'd thought, they'd been interested in buying the documentary rights, but then when they met me, they realized I would never be able to finish the book. Um, <laughs> at least they paid for lunch. Um, um, I thought they were right. I couldn't do it. And then my phone rang. And on the other end of the line was Seth Blatter. And Seth Blatter said, you reached out to my publicist, and I was wondering if you'd like to come over to my house and watch the election with me at my house. And so I got in a taxi really fast and went to his house and spent four or five hours with Seth Blatter watching on his iPad the election in his house. And 
Um, and I realized it was going to be like that. Like the whole book was going to involve banging on every door you can until the door you didn't bang on opens up and suddenly things happen. You know, one of those trips to Miami, I contacted someone on a whim. I mean, it was, it was one of those things where you're searching, you get somewhere and it was a useless interview and you're a couple hours to kill and you're Googling on your phone, you know, so-and-so lawyer and poop, a name comes up and I call and this person answers and goes, I was just stepping out, but I have a few minutes coming to my office. And that encounter, which I'd never planned on the whole trip, led to a massive document dump that I never would have got in the whole case and really critical um, to understanding a huge piece of the case involving different, different characters in the case. So um, that, that, the process was a combination of learning as much as I could and then just trying and trying. It also helped. I speak Spanish. Um, it was really helpful in this case, which had such a Latin American scope, and I forced myself to learn how to read in Portuguese. Um, which was also really important. So I read multiple books in Portuguese um, and spent a lot of time on these great newspaper archives for Brazilian newspapers reading old um, old articles. One, I just put one on Twitter the other day that I really enjoyed. I found um, from a newspaper from 1989 from Rio de Janeiro um, an article about how um, an American who was a member of the Nobel Foundation Committee had sent a letter to Avalanche, who was still president then, um, saying that while it's true that the Dalai Lama was a meritorious recipient of the Nobel Prize, he really felt that Avalon should have received the Nobel Prize. And by the way, um, if you have a job, I, I'm looking. Um, that soccer official was Chuck Blazer, um, who, by the way, was not a member of the Nobel Foundation. Um, only Norwegian and Swedish people can be members of the foundation. Um, but he, at that moment, was in between jobs and desperate for work in the world of soccer. As to your other question about the state of investigative journalism, um, you know, we just saw this last week, uh, or last week, the Daily News, um, a paper that I used, that was a sister paper, the New York Daily News was a sister paper of the paper I used to work at, the LA Times. Um, they just fired half their staff. Um, and uh, I, there's not a day that goes by where I don't see some other piece of news about journalists losing their jobs. I'm really lucky. Um, I would, you know, in Twitter speak, honored and blessed to work at a place that supports investigative journalism. We have a, a really nice sized team at BuzzFeed. Um, all those food videos, the tasty videos you might have seen, um, or the, the sort of odd humor that 16-year-olds find so great on um, YouTube that BuzzFeed creates helps fund what the, myself and the members of my team do, and we're really fortunate about that. It's, it's frustrating because there's probably, in my lifetime, never been a richer and more important moment for investigative journalism than right now. Um, but seeing how there's a resource crunch at so many places um, except for sort of a, a few publications and how much pressure is on those publications to carry the weight um, uh, is, is sometimes disheartening. So what is heartening is that there is some incredible work being done. Um, so uh, you've given me an opportunity to plug investigative journalism writ large and that people support journalism however they can. And it doesn't just have to be by reading a newspaper, but it can be listening to podcasts these days or even looking at um, documentaries on Netflix that are investigative in nature. So um, I hope that helps answers part of your question. Um, so he's asking about some an, ar an article that appeared in the Sunday Times of London um, uh, yesterday. Um, and it showed that apparently Qatar, when it's trying to win that war those World Cup rights we've been talking about, ran sort of a black ops campaign where they were trying to get uh, academics and journalists to write negative articles about other bids um, as a way to sort of um, indirectly promote their own bid. Uh, so one of the examples was that an academic at the University of Maryland was paid $9,000 to write um, 
an article saying that hosting a World Cup would be bad for the U.S. economy, um, and the idea would be that that would sort of convince FIFA voters not to vote for um, the U.S., but instead vote for Qatar. Um, it's, it's some interesting stories. I think that those kinds of um, operations, that kind of, um, you know, I, you almost can think of it as fake news, the way we think of it now, driven ops, where um, incorrect information or at least very, um, uh, very uh, politically oriented but, but disguised information is being used to change public opinion is at play. I personally have some questions about how much of a role what we learned about yesterday um, would have played in the votes because back then it was 24 p in a, people in a secret bunker room voting on the World Cup, not the 211 members. And I think having seen that most of those guys ended up in legal trouble one way or the other, that probably their motivation was much more about money and, and about whether academics were damning the bids. Um, but I do think that kind of operation is becoming much more pervasive. We've seen it in politics, and we see it in, in other realms as well. Um, there, Qatar is a, has become a big enemy of the Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Um, that war is being fought in a lot of ways, including in a proxy war of the World Cup. So I expect we're going to see a ton of negative information about Qatar in the next three and a half years. Um, uh, just a, a river of it coming out, slamming Qatar at every, at every level. And I think the motivation for a lot of it, uh, some of it might be true. It's important to know because Qatar has all kinds of human rights problems. Qatar probably won the World Cup through bribery. Um, uh, Qatar is an unsuitable place to hold the World Cup. For all those reasons, maybe it shouldn't have the World Cup. But it's probably, that's the messaging we're going to get when the actual motive is a country like the Emirates or Saudi Arabia just wanting to undermine Qatar and make them look bad for other reasons. Um, so that's a place where soccer becomes a proxy for geopolitics. So the question was, there was this unique uh, thing in 2010 where both where two World Cups were voted on at the same time, whether that's ever happened before or since, and what was the, the um, explanation given for why it would be done that way. And the answer is no, it's never done before, uh, been done before or since. Um, it's unlikely to ever happen again. And if you look at old news clippings, there's sort of a variety of explanations that have been handed out over the years. None of them make any kind of sense. Um, I asked Seth Blatter about that, and I asked other officials, and they've got squirrely answers. You know, it made, it made the most sense. It was a reasonable time, the way the TV deals are structured, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't make any sense. The answer is, uh, in my opinion, that the that generation of officials realize that they might not be around much longer. Um, and the opportunity to squeeze money out of these, these votes was so great they decided to go for a two for the price of one kind of deal. So I think, um, I think that was the motivation there. I think the embarrassment from it and the, just the embarrassment of the two teams that were clearly least qualified, two countries, excuse me, that were least qualified to get it, getting it. Yeah, and teams, yeah. I mean, Qatar is going to be even worse than Russia in terms of quality in the field. Um, they're so bad they had to, like, um, create an academy to sort of um, recruit Brazilian youth and, and drag them to Qatar and turn them into, oh, the, to be fair, I don't know if you saw the um, Russia-Croatia game, the equalizer was scored by a Brazilian um, who has nationalized a Russian citizen. Um, uh, but um, <laughs> um, uh, there was a moment after this vote where Jerome Valk, who was in the news in the last couple of days, he was the general secretary, which is sort of like the, the COO, so to speak, of FIFA, is riding in a bus back from the uh, place where the press conference is held to where the festivities are supposed to be. And he's thinking about the fact that Russia and Qatar have been named to host it. 
and several people um, observed him sitting there with his face in his hands saying, this is the end of FIFA. Uh, he was kind of prescient. The question is, um, after going through the, um, the emotionally awful, soul-destroying experience of writing a book and the even worse experience of promoting a book, whether I would ever <laughs> do that uh, again, and I almost want to defer to my wife who has had to go through that process with me um, and uh, deserves, just like the Dalai Lama, deserves a Nobel Prize for the experience. Um, I didn't think I ever would. I thought I was getting close to publication date and I was just done. Um, but then I had to go back to my desk and start thinking about articles again and sort of the call of long airplane trips and reading books in Portuguese started like whispering in my ear. Um, I've heard from a lot of authors, of, uh, at least of nonfiction, which is apparently what I do, um, that that happens, that once you, once you sort of um, open that door, it's hard to close it again. So um, uh, knocking on wood, I hope I get a chance to, to do it at some point, but give me a little time, please. Anyone else? Yeah. Um, number of books on that topic. Um, uh, match fixing is clearly a serious problem in multiple sports, but particularly uh, soccer. Um, uh, and one of the things that happened with this case is that the prosecutors um, and agents early on made a decision that they were not going to investigate match fixing. The reason they made that decision is because what they determined and what was confirmed in their conversations with the cooperators they began hooking and bringing into the case was that the really corrupt officials running the sport typically weren't involved in the match fixing side. Um, the, since their uh, uh, illicit income depended on selling um, sponsorship and broadcasting deals, um, they wanted the public image of the sport to be as good as possible. They didn't want people to know they were taking bribes, of course, but they wanted the world to think the sport was clean, and they determined that the best way to ruin the sport's image is for people to think it was fixed. So they were uh, actually quite um, upset about match-fixing and, and opposed it, and the people ran, running the match-fixing tended to be um, Asian um, crime syndicates. Um, there was a guy... Um, uh, named Wilson Perimbal, I believe his name was, um, who was um, ultimately arrested and told the whole world about about this. And he was from Singapore, I think. And he um, he was arrested because he was fixing, uh, fixing Finnish third division soccer matches, um, which gives you a sense of the kind of match fixing that happens. Ultimately, if you if it's a the reason you fix a soccer match or a tennis match or anything is because someone's betting on it and you want to know the outcome ahead of time so you're going to win the bet. Well, once there's a line, it doesn't really matter. If, if, a, if a bookie will take the bet, it doesn't matter if it's the finished third division or if it's the World Cup final. And um, the way you fix a match is you, is you bribe, uh, typically you bribe or coerce people um, to, to behave, to, you know, to throw the match, right? You bribe a goalie to let a goal in um, or you bribe a referee to call a penalty when there's no penalty. It's very hard to bribe someone to win, right? You know, anyone who played high school sports, knows that no matter how much your coach yells at you, it doesn't mean you're going to make that basket. Um, but it's pretty easy to mix, miss that basket if you have to. Um, it's much cheaper to bribe a goalkeeper in Nicaragua than it is a guy playing in the World Cup final. Um, uh, a colleague of mine, in, in the question of the investigative reporting, two colleagues of mine did a great expose of tennis match fixing, and what they found out is the top 50 players don't do it. But the next 50 do it a lot. And the reason is, is because if you're the 51st ranked tennis player in the world, you're really good at tennis, but you're not making any money. You know, you're, you're, all your money goes to being on the tour, and you're, and you're clearing almost no money. So if someone says for you to tank a match, 
and make 50,000 bucks, that's like, that's great. You're going to do it. And that applies to soccer as well. As a funny side note, Chuck Blazer, who I keep coming back to, actually was so indignant about match fixing that even though he hadn't paid taxes in 17 years, he called up the FBI um, about six months before he was busted by the IRS. He called up the FBI and demanded a meeting with them to talk about match fixing, um, which you think about as a pretty brazen thing for a guy to do who hasn't paid taxes in 17 years. But he called him up and he said he was outraged because he heard there was match fixing and they needed to do something about it. Well, the agent at the FBI who was already in the case thought this was a brilliant opportunity to sit down with a guy he'd already been looking at. So uh, um, that gives you a sense of how separated those guys are from that world. Do I have a favorite soccer team? So um, I grew up here in Seattle, as I mentioned earlier, and did not play soccer. I played um, baseball and uh, American football, as I now call it. I just can't stop calling, my, calling it American football. Um, and, um, and lacrosse. Um, and then I moved to Mexico uh, in my mid-20s and started following soccer a little bit down there. And then I married my lovely wife, who is from Argentina, uh, where they have a rather serious soccer culture. Um, and um, started making trips down there and got much more interested in the sport. Um, so uh, uh, in our family, the Argentine family, we root for the local team. There's two local teams in our hometown, and we, we root for the traditionally weaker of the two. Um, Union de Santa Fe, so that's sort of my rooting interest, um, and I guess um, uh, just by proximity, I'm, I'm now rooting for LAFC, which is the new club in Los Angeles where I, where I live. Rob is asking about uh, uh, whether I have any connection to the Steele dossier, um, and the answer is yes. Um, uh, the Steele dossier, um, after it was passed to the FBI, began circulating around um, some journalists um, uh, and um, also people like Jim Comey um, in the fall of um, 2016. Um, and as fate would have it, one of those journalists was me. Um, and um, uh, once I got possession of sort of the most complete version that we've seen of that, um, uh, it was shared with my editors and um, spent, I took some time away from the book to cover what we decided was slightly more important than um, soccer corruption, and um, uh, on uh, January, uh, in January of 2017, um, uh, um, we published the dossier. So um, my boss, is, my direct boss, and my boss's boss, and me were on a conference call on this day, and we decided to publish this, this document, which um, has had interesting ramifications in my life. Um, I've been sued um, twice. Um, one of the people who sued me was Michael Cohen, um, uh, I was deposed in February in a different case. Um, if you have never been deposed, I think you should stay on that side of the ledger. It's not a very fun experience. Um, and um, luckily, Michael Cohen, um, who now has bigger fish to fry, um, dropped his suit, but the other two remain. Um, and so uh, um, those cases continue. A lot of people who are in the sort of the First Amendment legal realm consider the, the issue of whether BuzzFeed should or should not have published to be a really, uh, really important issue. Um, what I found personally, anecdotally, is that the balance of public opinion has really shifted on that, that when we first published, um, the, the um, haters and the no column um, sort of greatly outweighed the other. Uh, now, a year and a half later, it's, it's much the opposite. Um, most people um, seem to support it, and it's gotten to the point that 
the dossier, which was so shocking and controversial when it came out, as many of you probably remember, um, doesn't seem to shock anyone anymore and seems like accepted um, sort of dogma in the world of, of international intrigue. Um, so um, uh, for legal reasons, I can't get into sort of details of how I got it or why I got it, but um, uh, I will say it's not an accident um, that a guy who's writing a soccer book would have ended up with that. So that's about as much as I can say about that. Um, thank you very much for coming. Um, I'll be signing some books, um, answering questions you have there.